The Bible reading this morning is from Acts chapter 8, from verse 1 to verse 25. And the first sentence is, and Saul approved of his execution. That is the execution of Stephen, who was stoned. Um, that, that's the end of chapter 7. So, chapter 8 starts, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the reaches of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God, and is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and preached for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but he had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May you still perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gifts of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore for this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you, Hetty, and, uh, and thank you, Case. Uh, it would be really good to keep your Bible open there at Acts 8. Uh, as we uh, have a look at this, particularly starting at verse 4 this morning. Uh, if you're 
new with us today. Uh, we have been making our way for a little while through this uh, book uh, about the ongoing works of Jesus uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. And uh, this is the section that we're going to be considering this morning. Uh, in the email that went out, you will have seen a couple of outlines. Uh, one is for kids. Uh, there's a kid sheet with some activities and some questions to help you follow along. There's also a, a growing up outline, I guess, as well. Uh, and that's got some discussion questions at the bottom. So maybe your growth group or your family or some other context you want to use them or just even by yourself just for, uh, for further thought. Uh, as we jump in, let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that your word is powerful, that you act through it in our lives and in our church. We pray, Lord God, that you would do that this morning, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would turn our attention, our heart, our hearts, our affection to Jesus and to his work. We pray, Lord, this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as we grow up, we regularly enter into what we might call a new chapter or a new phase of life. That first day that we have at school, that's a, that's a new chapter of life, isn't it? The day we get our driver's license, the day we start a new job, the day we leave home, the day we get married, the birth of our first child, when our children leave home when we retire. These are, these are all new chapters, new phases of our lives. It means when we go through them that things are going to be different going forward. These times can often be exciting, can't they? They bring about with them new challenges, new opportunities, new people to meet, maybe new freedom. Many of these chapters of life we look forward to for months, perhaps even years to come. But often they involve some anxiety as well. They bring some fear, new challenges, new hurdles to overcome. They may cause us to be anxious or worried. I still remember quite clearly the day that I left New Zealand to move to Australia to begin my own studies at the RTC. I remember how excited I was for this new chapter in my life. I couldn't wait. I got to go overseas for the, for the very first time. I got to meet new people, start new studies, settle into a, a new church. But there was some anxiety around that too. I was leaving home. Would I be able to make friends? Would I be able to stick with my studies? Had new life to settle into? Well, I want to suggest this morning we have, here in Acts 8, a new chapter in the work of the gospel. Here is a new, exciting phase in the ongoing work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of the church. It's exciting, but it's scary as well. And as we dive in this morning and as we work our way through the passage, I want to suggest that this is a story that should cause us to be excited about this ongoing work that Jesus is doing. It should cause us to look for new opportunities for that work, but also to cast our reliance again and again on Christ. So let's dive in. And we're started here in verse 4. And the context that we have is this 
incredible situation of persecution. We get this snapshot of how this new phase of work, this new chapter, began. And it's not how we might expect. It doesn't come about because the church is particularly proactive. It doesn't happen because they have a master plan for the evangelism of the world. It actually comes about because of persecution. Now, if you remember a week ago, uh, we had a look at the start of chapter 6. And here we had this situation where seven men were appointed to take care of some of the needs of part of the community there in Jerusalem. And the first two names on that list were Stephen and Philip. Now, Stephen was really the focus for the rest of chapter 6 and on through chapter 7. I'd encourage you to have a read of them over the next week. As he, as he preaches, as he's arrested and tried and gives account, and ultimately as he put, is put to death. Now, this starts off a wave of persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And it has to scatter throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. Now, again, this, this looks like a massive threat to the church, a tactic of the enemy of the church, Satan. But as the church is scattered, the gospel goes with them. People are sharing the good news of Jesus. And it's in this context that we are reintroduced to Philip. And he's going to be the centre of this whole chapter. And we're going to look at the second half of it next week. He goes up to the city in Samaria or the city in Samaria. Now, I want to suggest that something has taken place to make this possible. Up until now, the focus has been on the work of the apostles or the work of Jesus through them. But now, in Stephen and in Philip, we are introduced to a new generation of gospel workers. And I want to suggest that this hasn't come about by chance or coincidence. It's happened because this new early church has been proactive in the raising up and the equipping of more people to share in the task of proclaiming the gospel. Remember, back to chapter 6, why Stephen and Philip and the others there were chosen. They were of good repute. They were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. God had been at work in their lives, renewing them, transforming them, maturing them, and he'd used his church to do that. You see, new chapters and new phases in the ongoing work of Jesus, are going to need this. If the church is going to continue in its task, if the church is going to continue with the work of the gospel, it's going to take the next generation of gospel workers. And so we see throughout the New Testament that there is this emphasis, particularly for leaders, to recruit, to train, to equip, and to send out a new generation. Paul writes to both Timothy and Titus, men that he himself had invested into, had been involved in raising up. And now he encourages them to pass on to others who will pass on to others. So this ongoing work of equipping will happen. 
Now, it's a, it's a good thing when a church is able to replace its ministry leaders and its volunteers. We know that the reality is that, that people need a break from time to time. People move on for various reasons, or they, they need a break, or they get older, and they can't do the ministries they did. Replacement is great. But we should be desiring and working for even more. A new generation of workers who can be engaged in new chapters of gospel work. That's one of the reasons why we as a church a couple of years ago started off our internship program to assist in this. We've had to recognise that this is something we've always done well as a church and as leaders and myself included. And we're not alone in this. Across the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia, we have a shortfall of pastors, elders, church planners, ministry leaders, youth workers, because we haven't always been active in raising and equipping the next generation. And so we need to keep asking the question, who is those next leaders, those next workers for the gospel? Ministry leaders should be on the lookout for people who are coming up, who are showing great maturity, good repute, full of the Spirit. All of us should be praying for and encouraging people to consider what ministry roles, what ministries God would have them be a part of. We should be encouraging to see younger people exposed to different places of ministry. Well, as Philip goes up then into Samaria, we're told we have this wonderful new chapter in the ongoing ministry mission of Jesus. Remember back to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus outlines how this is going to take place. And he tells his disciples that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, up until now, it's been focused in Jerusalem. But as they scatter, they go to Judea, and now Philip is in Samaria. And what does he do there? Well, he, he doesn't do anything new, actually. He does what he's seen and what he's been taught. He preaches the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, and God performs miracles through him. And incredibly, the people of Samaria pay attention to him. Now it's important for us to, to pause for a moment and realise who these Samaritans are. They live just north of Jerusalem and Judea and south of Galilee, sort of wedged in between parts of Israel. This is the area that was previously occupied by the ten northern tribes of Israel. Now, several hundred years earlier, those tribes have been taken off into captivity. Well, most of them had. A few had remained, and into that were brought a whole lot of other people from around the world. They had intermarried, they had taken on their gods, and kept some of their old. And so Jewish people regarded them as rebels, responsible for the division, religious compromises. You remember when Jesus uh, spends time with the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman by the well. 
One of almost the first things she says to him is, hey, you and us, we have nothing to do with each other. But throughout the Old Testament, we get these great promises that even though the kingdom has been divided, God is saying that that division is not the end. He was promising that one day he would unite his people back together. Here's part of this, just from Ezekiel chapter 37. It says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided in two kingdoms. Now, in Jesus' earthly ministry, we get a hint of this, don't we? He tells the story of a, of a good Samaritan. Uh, he has, we have the story of the Samaritan leopard, and the story of Jesus with the woman by the well. But what's happening here in Acts 8? God is fulfilling that promise. He is bringing back the lost, scattered people of Israel. They not only paid attention to Philip, but they believe the gospel and they are baptized and they are included into the kingdom. This can happen because the one true king has come. And it's Jesus. He has broken down the division, not only between people and God, but between people and people. He reigns on the throne over all of creation. And by his power, he is restoring the world back to God. He is undoing the powerful hold of the evil one. You see, there's something else going on in here that's an important part of this work of God. Let me take you back to verse 6 for a moment and look at what it says. It says that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to being what was said by Philip. Think of that phrase, paid attention, because it's going to come up two more times. You see, previously, they paid attention to someone else. We're introduced here to this man called Simon, and he's going to come up a little bit later on again. But this man named Simon, they, they paid attention to him because he performed magic. He considered himself great. Suggestions are that he, he may have even considered himself divine or a personification of God or of God's power. But now they pay attention to the gospel. They believe in Jesus and are set free from the grip of Satan. Why is it, church, that we should be concerned about new chapters in the ongoing mission of Jesus through his church? Why should we look for new ministry opportunities, plant new churches? There's a fear in that, isn't there? And Maybe that's even very real for us at the moment. What if it doesn't work? Why should we go out of our comfort zone, put ourselves at risk, even risk failure? 
Why would people respond to God's call to go overseas to work as missionaries? Why should we put effort into reaching people of different cultural backgrounds or different socioeconomic backgrounds when people might look very different from us? Well, here's our answer. Jesus compels us. He reigns. He rules. He is freeing people from the grip of Satan. He is bringing back together what sin has torn apart. He is restoring people back to God, bringing forgiveness and life and hope. God has promised that he will draw his people together from the ends of the earth, starting with the people down our street to people overseas. And if that doesn't stir us, if that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what will. God is beginning new chapters in his work. And he's calling his people to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now up until verse 14 here, uh, everything is going along quite well quite swimmingly. But I have to admit that the second half of this passage gets a whole lot more difficult to understand. Firstly, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit through Peter and John, and then in this interaction with Simon about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which I've labelled in your outline, if you'll see there, as a new challenge. Because this is a new challenge. How are these people going to fit into the church? So much mistrust. So much hatred even. So many centuries of having nothing to do with each other. Is this the start of two streams of the church? Two different denominations, one for Jewish people, one for Samaritans? Is this how it's going to look from here on, of people of different races, colours, languages, all meeting in different churches? That's a challenge, isn't it? And it's one that God overcomes. See, what happens is that word reaches Jerusalem in verse 14. And they send Peter and John down up to Samaria. And what they discover, and we're not told how they know this, But what they find is that the Samaritans have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so they come, they lay hands, they pray, and the Holy Spirit comes. Now again, we're not told how they know this, but there must be some evidence. And so what we have here in this chapter is conversion at one point, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at a different point. Now, to be honest, this is actually the cause of a lot of controversy. And, and I don't want to spend a heap of time here, but we do, we do have to think about it. The question is, is this a normal experience or is this a unique experience? Is this a normal experience that people might still have today where at one point they are converted, they're 
regenerated, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, repent, faith and baptize, and then a further time down the track, they receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this is actually the position of, of the Roman Catholic Church, partly based on this passage. Baptism is the, really the point of conversion, and then confirmation becomes the point of receiving the Holy Spirit. It's also, quite differently, a core belief of the, the Pentecostal movement, where conversion can happen at one moment and then some other time down the track can be the outpouring or the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is then accompanied with visible, audible evidences. Now, the difficulty with seeing this as normal is that it seems to go against what we read elsewhere. And in particular, if you think back to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, when people ask, what should we do? He tells them uh, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The rest of the New Testament seems to be that it's the Spirit who gives life, who regenerates, who leads us to repentance and faith, and should be followed by baptism. Conversion and receiving the Holy Spirit seem to go together. You see, I think a, a better way of understanding Acts chapter 8 here is to see this as a unique situation, one that overcomes a great challenge and a great obstacle in the early church. This is a unifying moment. God has one church made up of many different people. He has one unified body with one spirit. In this unique situation, God is making that clear. He's making it clear to the Samaritans. You belong to the same church as Jerusalem. You are one with them, not second-class Christians, not different Christians. You're the same. And he's making it clear to the apostles as well. These people belong to you. You are one church, one body in Christ Receiving the one spirit. You see, this becomes a, a stepping stone and even a, an even greater challenge which is about to come to the early church when Gentiles will be converted. God values the unity of his church. It is so important to him that in this case, he does it this way. You see, this is a challenge that is always going to come with new chapters, new phases in Jesus' ongoing work in the world. As missionaries have been sent out around the globe for centuries, they've faced this challenge. But unity is highly prized. There is one body of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this in, in relation to when the hub begins to join us from next Sunday. How important it will be for us to be one church together. How important it's going to be for us to welcome, to receive and to involve. There can't be a sense of them and us. 
And the onus will be on us to welcome them, to enfold them, to love them. Whenever it is that God brings new people to our church, this is going to be a challenge. And this is going to be something that needs to be important. When God brings people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic groups, we're to remember that we're one church in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another challenge that goes on here as well, and, and this is where we'll finish up. As the gospel enters this new chapter, we see the same enemy of the church rear his head. It's quite a different way, but it's the same enemy. Luke now takes us back to Simon. Simon, who was this magician. Simon, who we're told believed and was also baptised. But there was a hint that things weren't quite right. If you look back in chapter verse 13, it tells us that he continued with Philip. He's, he clung to him is really the word. And after seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when he sees the Holy Spirit given by the laying on of hands, he sees something that he wants. And so he approaches Peter and he offers him money so that he can have this power as well. How often has money and power been the downfall of churches and of leaders? There are three ways in which pastors will often come undone. Abuse of power, sex, and money. And here, the enemy of the church attempts to use money. Same enemy that uses persecution and division and purity. That enemy is at work Whenever the church of Jesus is preaching, preaching, being faithful to God and the calling that he's given us. We need to be on guard against the enemy, particularly at times when church life is going well. Peter will later describe him in his first letter as a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. And I wonder whether Peter had this in mind, this incident in mind when he wrote that. We need to be on guard for his work and his tactics. And when we see it, we need to confront it head on, like Peter does here. He confronts Simon and he confronts the sinfulness and the deception that is involved. And he cuts right to the heart of the matter, which is Simon's heart. Your heart is not right with God, he says. And if you do not repent, if you do not turn from this, you will have no part in the kingdom of God. Church history suggests that Simon doesn't repent. And he continues to be a threat against the church. We shouldn't be surprised, church, 
when things are going well, when God gives us new opportunities, when God takes his church into a new chapter, when it's growing, that the evil one will be active. In a sense, why would he bother with passive, lazy, inward-looking churches? He's already having success there. It's a reminder that we need to stand firm in Christ and stand firm in the gospel. This is where our hope is found. This is where our security. It's the word of God that works in our hearts, in our lives and in our church that enables us to stand firm. Because in his word, we're reminded of a saviour who has defeated the power of Satan, who has undone the curse, who reigns victorious over heaven and earth, who invites us to trust him, to follow him, to be in his care. Let's pray to him now, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that your church has continued to grow and expand. We thank you, Lord, that your gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. We thank you that you have included us in that expansion, that you have chosen to save us, to bring us life, to bring us into your kingdom. We thank you that you now invite us to be a part of your ongoing work by the power of the Spirit. Lord God, help us to take new opportunities that you give us. Help us to take those new opportunities in our lives, in our workplace, in our streets, in our neighbourhoods, in our families. And help us to take those new opportunities as a church too. Lord God, we pray for your leading, pray for your guiding, we pray for your enabling, and we pray for your protection. Keep us safe from the evil one, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.